0: Hello, and welcome to our Financial Services podcast series, Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host, Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT. This is a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. The purpose of our podcast is to explore some topics and questions, which we didn't even know were questions when we were working on the other side. For our regular listeners, this episode is going to be a bit different. We're delighted that Greg Lavender, VMware's CTO, was able to join us from his home in California so very early on a Monday morning. We got to chat with Greg about his story, which took him from being an engineer in the early days of the internet, and the path to being the CTO of a global bank, before moving on to become the CTO of a world-leading software company. We hope you'll be able to take away some insights from his story, how he faced the challenges of working in banking IT, his thoughts on the industry, and some of his thinking about his tenure as our CTO. Greg, could you introduce yourself, please?
1: Yeah, hi, Matthew. Thank you. Um, I'm, um, as you said, I'm the VMware CTO. I've been in this role approximately one year now, and I've uh, been at VMware two and a half years.
0: Super. So, Greg, can you, can you tell us a bit more about your, your journey to becoming the CTO?
1: I've had a long uh, technology career, um, in uh, mostly in computer networking. Um, I was very fortunate early in my career to be hired out of university into a major U.S. aerospace firm, uh, just as the DARPA net was starting to, uh, you know, gain traction uh, more broadly than just a research project. And uh, as a young, you know, ambitious, uh, wanting to study networking engineer. I was assigned to a networking project that was considered a research project, using two new newly defined protocols by the Department of Defense in the U.S. called the called TCP and IP. So my literally my first job out of school, since I had done some Unix and C programming as an undergraduate student, was uh, implementing uh, the Internet the early Internet protocols uh, for this aerospace company under contract to the U.S. government, and um, that was set the course of my career, and from then on. I have pretty much, um, you know, worked on core internet protocols, uh, the OSI protocols, uh, various specialized um, protocols, I'll call them, and um, and then uh, I went and obtained my PhD in computer networking and um, spent um, some years, three years at a research lab doing advanced distributed computing. Um, Out of that research work I did for my PhD in that research lab, I started uh, a startup company uh, that, su- that succeeded and was sold. I soldered another one that succeeded and was sold. And then a the third one I created or co-founded was uh, acquired by Sun Microsystems. I then spent 10 years at Sun Microsystems after the Oracle acquisition moved on to Cisco, ran network operating systems and protocol engineering for protocols in the control plane above the ASIC uh, at Cisco. And then was recruited to become the CTO uh, for cloud architecture and technology engineering at Citigroup, where I led the, um, a six-year cloud transit transformation by, at Citigroup. And I'm only 59. <laughs> <laughs> of our rough yeah. years. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I feel like I'm 80.
0: <laughs> so, so actually, so, so from, those, from those early days of the early internet to how the internet is now, have you any idea that that was what was going to come?
1: Frankly, I, I just thought this was going to be, you know, um, a military government, um, you know, technology. I, I sort of imagined since uh, the people I was working with were honest, honest to God rocket scientists, that many of them had worked on the Apollo programs and even the space shuttle programs, I just felt that you know what what would happen is this technology would end up in space and this is how we communicate with space aircraft uh, in the future. So I I did I never had any idea inkling at the time that it would become a widespread global communication network. But uh, it's been a great ride. And I, I make clear I you know I didn't create those protocols. I just was one of thousands of engineers probably at the time that were doing the early implementations. These were X25 networks at the time, and I just got fortunate that. Um, Luck, a lot of lifetimes, life is just luck. And I lucked out by working with some really great scientists and engineers who mentored me and uh, gave me an opportunity to work on what at the time was considered a uh, low-priority research project, which became something significant.
2: You've, your background's varied. You've worked in aerospace, you've worked in academia, you've worked in startups, you've worked in technology companies in startups, you've banking, and now you've Come back to technology. That's not a normal career in terms of the diversity. How how did that come about?
1: You know, I get asked that like, question a lot, actually, because uh, it is quite varied. And some people might think that uh, I have attention deficit disorder. That's exactly the opposite. I, I I figured out very early in my career that I wanted to work on what I call large scale distributed computing. And so, you know, of course, networking is the core of anything that's distributed computing. And so when I decided to go back to grad school and get my graduate degrees, I first took my master's in software engineering to make sure I had all those principles well, well honed. And then focused you know, heavily on uh, you know, networking distributed computing. And this is, this is in the late 80s you know, and uh, early 90s. So um, just when the Internet really started to take off. And so I you know, went to the research lab and um, in the networking distributed computing um, part of it. Uh, and then spend my companies out of that experience. But I've always just worked on this singular problem of large-scale distributed computing. And if you look back over the last 40 years or so, the technology, both in terms of the computing technology, the networking technology, software engineering, particularly object-oriented programming, um, you know, is, have, have all just evolved, you know, decade after decade. So I just pursued that singular problem. And I would say even today with cloud computing uh, that's you know sort of the peak of of all of those technologies coming together over the last 40 years. So from my perspective, I've always worked on the same problem. I've just pursued it in different organizational structures. And what I like to say is that c- companies pay to do things. Universities, academic research labs pay to think about things. So when I needed to think think about something to decide what to do, I was in an academic or research environment. And when I decided to do something, I either created a startup or I went to a major company who had the financial means and the market you know, market uh, focus to work on those things. And of course, Sun Microsystems slogan the network is the computer was a perfect place uh, to, go, to go do that. And then of course Cisco being a core networking provider was another perfect place to do that. But one of the most important steps in my career was when I went to Citigroup, because I'd realized after almost 30 years doing core technology that the, that the impetus had shifted to where customers were gonna be setting the future based on their business models. And so uh, I knew that um, both telcos and financials were the first movers on any new technology inflection point. In this case, the hyperscalers that we all know of uh, were driving the future of uh, distributed computing. And they were well down that path, but banking and telco were the places where the next innovations would happen. So I went to banking and uh, had a great six years. In fact, it was one of the most critical six years of my career. And seeing how all the widgets that I'd built my whole life come together to create a large scale global cloud to provide a global financial services company with the means to do their business in the 21st century. Um, apologies, during, during this session, you, you may hear one or more dogs barking. I, I have one dog who's absolutely deaf. But uh, Bark's the loudest. <laughs>
0: and no worries, we're all working from home, so um, I think we keep saying so. Please excuse us if you hear any young children, animals, or delivery drivers trying to join us. So, in these conversations that you're having with uh, with customers at all levels, uh, what are some of the consistent themes you get to hear, but particularly from our FS customers?
1: Uh, well, I t- you know, I mean, financial services is a special case because of the regulated industries and different regional regulatory authorities you know, have different requirements and rules, but, you know, they're all sort of similar, which is, you know, regulation, InfoSec is a big, a big issue, of course, for everyone. Um, and then, you know, I think p- during a time of fast change, fast business change, and fast technological change, CIOs, CTOs, and their organizations are, you know, having to do multiple things. I mean, they're having to enable the business and enable revenue for the business through Technology um, investments and technology delivery and technology adoption, and at the same time, they you know there's they have to have the talent. So both retention and recruitment of the right talent to lead them. Um, they have to manage uh, multiple vendor relationships, um, and you know the industry is highly competitive, and we're all racing to a, a, fu- a future uh, that's still emerging. And so, the the challenge I think you know, in, the, in companies, particularly financial services, is that the rate of change does not match the usual rate of the change internally. And so whether it's, you know, technical debt through um, legacy or vintage systems, as they're, they're often called, uh, you know, how do you free up both APEC, OPEX and CAPEX um, budget to invest in that future while continuing to, to maintain things? I mean, one of the things I learned clearly in banking is that uh, yes, you want to you want to evolve it, you want to change it, but you can't break it because it has to run 24 by 7 every day of the year. And I think you know banks have invested heavily, in particular in you know five nines availability. And you start looking at you know public cloud services, and you get you know you get like three nines availability. So how do you architect and engineer your applications, your your services, your runtimes that you might operate in a public or hybrid cloud? How do you get you know, through the ap- application architecture or the runtime architecture that you have to bring your own, how do you get, you know, at least four nines of availability? And, you know, if, if possible, using your own data centers in a hybrid cloud model, you can get five nines of availability. So I think the cha- the challenges for these, you know, information critical businesses, banking being, you know, an information critical business uh, and the global economy will seize up if it's not working, it's important to to change it, evolve it, but not break it. And that takes a lot of thought, a lot of investment and uh, careful consideration, particularly around cybersecurity risk and regulatory risk.
0: So so you said that you were in a senior role in a, one of the largest banks in the world. What are the sorts of things that either you'd wish you'd known or surprised you the most?
1: F- first, first, I would sort of, uh, I mean, this is, is just kind of in the in sense of humor. You know, having spent, you know, you know many, many years in core tech, and also in um, you know, Silicon Valley, working for the major companies like Sun and Cisco. You know, I knew a lot about banking as a provider of technology, sort of understood the demands, particularly high frequency, uh, low latency trading platforms. Uh, banks were big adopters of high performance computing, grid, grid computing for running uh, Monte Carlo simulations for risk calculations, et cetera. And, um, you know, we're always considered, at least when I was at Sun and Cisco, very demanding customers. So I sort of knew, you know, the culture of, of banking, and that, that that didn't concern me. It was a you know, tough environment sometimes, but but you're facing you know lots of lots of business challenges, and at the same time, as I said, innovating you know, when it makes sense. And so, from my perspective, you know, there was a, certainly it was my first hundred days was kind of a drinking from the fire hose experience of just absorbing, you know, from the inside, not from the outside looking in, but from the inside, really understanding. You know the organization I had, the, the challenges I would have to kind of face, and um, you know did, had not quite appreciated the the regulatory environment and the risk and control environment, you know, around that uh, regulatory structure. Uh, certainly understood the cybersecurity challenges uh, for any company, but particularly in banking. So, from my perspective, and again having deeply grounded roots in just about every technology that you know, kind of was out there from desktops all the way back into the data center, networking and storage compute, et cetera, um, you know, that I had to really learn more that, that, business, that business model and the risk factors around that business model, because everything you do has to bring into consideration, you know, the life cycle management of technology. And you can't just go after the new, new thing. You still have the old, old thing. And you've got to um, carefully evolve it as a, one um, board member told me once after a board update, um, you know, he says, uh, Mr. Lavender, uh, and this, was on, this was in around 2012, it was the 200th anniversary of the company. Mr. Lavender, uh, we've been in business for 200 years. Uh, we want you to change it, but don't break it because we want to be in business for another 100 years. So that's the proverbial, okay, you know, change, change the engines on the, on the airplane while it's flying Without upsetting the investment bankers buying in first class, <laughs> that's kind of the way I, dis- I describe that. So, so the, so the so the challenge is, you know, it's like where do you start? And uh, being a long time networking guy, you know, I started at the network layer, which is, you know, if you, if you know of the seventh layer OSI model, that's kind of where you want to start. Um, you know, it, it happened to be in, in the early in the early, early you know in the early two thousand tens post financial crisis. Um, you know, the traditional north-south networking model was under duress and so i spent the first few months examining all the step one step two and step three network outage issues and realized that i had to fix the network before i could fix anything else so i would say that was one of the seminal decisions that i had made was to design a leaf spine network um which today is something everyone's doing it uh, but then was i think I was maybe the second second financial services company to adopt that model and then you know drive it at scale and on on, the, on top of that network east west uh, network uh, architecture uh, you could do software defined data center software defined storage obviously use vmware for 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 much of this um, but um you know, in user computing everything was built on this new network architecture and so my my 30 years of experience in networking allowed me to achieve that without breaking anything and with a great team of people working for me, of course, and um, we evolved that uh, to be the private cloud. And then we, you know, did some things in the public cloud uh, under risk-controlled and uh, secure, you know, security considerations. But uh, I think the key, the key thing really is this: this idea that uh, you can take the public cloud ideas and you can bring them back into a large enterprise, and you can, you know, uh, model them fit that enterprise model at good economics. So I had three principles I kept reiterating to everyone, which is cloud economics. That is, we can achieve economics approximating the public cloud. We can't, you know, I can't buy servers at a million dollars of scale. I buy them at much smaller scale. So I, so I don't get as good of economics as you might get buying directly from the, the ODMs, the original device manufacturers, like some of the hyperscalers do, and building my own servers, but if banks don't want to build their own servers. We want to buy them. With somebody's logo on them is essentially an insurance policy that says if something goes wrong with that server, you know, that, that vendor will take care of it. But um, you know, so you have to make some trade-offs, but essentially you can build a cloud platform, infrastructure as a service, you can then build platform as a service, you can build, you know, containers as a service, you know, database as a service, middleware as a service, you can turn everything into X as a service uh, through software automation. So once you have the compute, the software-defined compute virtualization software-defined storage there's several products now you can pick both object store and block storage and once you once you have your network architecture right, uh, then it's just a matter of innovating at the speed of software by licensing it. Um, some of it you craft yourself typically your automation particularly your risk and controls environments and you, you know with, with reasonably good talent or talent you can train and recruit from universities and educate and train you can, you can build a private cloud and then up to some scale, so, cloud economics, cloud speed, cloud scale. So, up to some economics, some speed, some scale, it makes sense to do it on-prem. Then you, the industry has evolved to hybrid cloud, and then public cloud. You have to as I said, bring your own resiliency architecture, bring your own security architecture, leverage what they have, of course, and utilize it. But essentially, uh, take take advantage of that.
0: If you went back, what would you focus on on that on that f- first six months? And and you know, or maybe what would be the three things you would really Spend time on one of the great advantages.
1: Um, this is you know, eight years ago. I started that journey. The you know the technology has has matured and advanced. The architectures I think are still the same in terms of what it needs to be a private cloud architecture or a hybrid cloud architecture or leverage the public cloud. But um, you know I th- I think um, you know it's really important to socialize these ideas. And these technologies with you know all the key stakeholders and that's often the lines of business heads but most importantly you know you, if you, you know you can't build it and hope they come you have to and I learned this sort of in the second half of my tenure is you really have to focus on the application teams and the application architectures so we have we know what infrastructure as a service is today we know what platform is a service we know the technologies containers as a service still emerging for some customers but the leading edge is well down the path of containers and Kubernetes and microservices and service meshes and these more exotic, you know, things that allow you to run in any cloud, so multi-cloud. But customers are still sort of, I think, in the private hybrid, some public cloud model. And the, 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 thing, the thing is the application teams have to transform as well. It's not just infrastructure. So at VMware, obviously we, we, we've acquired uh, companies that give us a foothold in a leadership role actually in the containers Kubernetes environment with the acquisition of FTO and in further investments we've made in the acquisition of Pivotal uh, at the end of last year. So that we now have a modern application portfolio and we continue to invest in that and grow that and enable the application teams um, to adopt whether they want Pivotal, you know, platforms as a service, containers as a service, Kubernetes as a service, um, give give customers the opportunity to um, for the application teams to engage. So that's that's a that's that, that's that's really the place is you've gotta really focus on the evolution of the application architecture. And then back to my principles of cloud economics, cloud speed, and cloud scale. How do you get those applications delivering at speed? How do you get them so that they can horizontally scale, maybe across multiple clouds for multi-cloud resiliency? You've got to really focus on the resiliency architecture of those applications, the security architecture of the applications, because the applications, you know, you know running running wild, um, you know, day two security issues become really, really important. There's been innumerable stories and cases of, you know, infrastructure people setting everything up perfectly in the public cloud, and then the application team sticks their, their private keys into a public, you know, S3 bucket on Amazon, and somebody steals the data, not because of the lack of encryption of the data is because you didn't manage the keys properly. So there's so many issues that are not technical, they're their process, their you know, their risk and control, their infosec, and their their day two operations. And so I think those things all have to be considered back to my earlier comment that the cloud is an operating model. And it's a place, but it's an operating model at a particular place with a particular set of uh, challenges and risks, just like on prem So you really have sort of private cloud, hybrid cloud public cloud, edge cloud, depending on what your edge is. It could be a branch in a banking environment, ATM machines. Um, and then it's um, and then it's the pub, you know, it's the multi-cloud to give yourself multi cloud resiliency or give you choice. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of you know, advising customers to preserve choice as much as possible. And um, you know yeah you're gonna you're gonna bet on some things and you know I don't call it lock in, I just call it you made you made your major bet on a strategic technology. You're gonna write you're gonna ride that for a decade or more. You know, it's, it's the new emerging things that are the, the risky challenges. Every company is still struggling with how much OPEX and CAPEX is captive of their you know, traditional technologies and traditional application architectures. And so they have to, you know, that's the run the bank. They have to continue to, to run the bank. And so a lot, of, a lot of resources, both financial and people-wise, are tied up in that endeavor. And so it's, you have to caref- very carefully plan the the transition to to the new. And so I think, you know, given my experiences because I was able to do you know some of this, is you know how do you how do you start to decommission over time, you know, usually aligned to some kind of contractual uh, service agreements and or depreciation schedules for capital assets. How do you how do you transition out of that environment over time without creating risk, undue risk, to the new environment. So for example, let's say you have a bunch of traditional fiber channel storage, you have a bunch of traditional Unix compute, you know, from the traditional Unix vendors running on risk architectures. Um, And those apps are, are running just fine. The cost structures under them are not what you'd like compared to a private cloud, hybrid cloud, or maybe even a public cloud, you know, cost structure. And so how do, you, how do you migrate off those platforms? And how do you optimize over you know, the licensing and you know, particularly if you have lock-in to particular database vendors or you know, other, other vendors? And so that, that, you know, I spent a bunch of time and had a special team working on that problem because for every dollar I could free up, if you, you know, if you could reinvest 50 cents of that in the new and give 50 cents back to the CFO and cut that deal with the CFO, then you know it's a win-win because you've now started you know you know migrating yourself out of the out of that legacy platform you know to that new software-defined data center that new software-defined storage to new new kind of cloud model and um, you know but you didn't you didn't break anything back to the idea you you're running the bank you didn't break the bank but you migrated the bank in a risk-controlled way so I think. You know, mapping that out could take could take three or four years. If you're at the beginning of depreciation cycle, you have got a four year depreciation on a capital asset. It'll take four years. But most people are somewhere in the middle. Let's call it two. So you know, you can plan yourself a two year a two year process and dedicate the resources to get you off of it. Because if you get fifty cents back on a dollar to invest, you know, in the new, that that's how you will over some you know five or six years period of time you will actually achieve it. And the run rate savings, not to mention the cost avoidance of not refreshing those legacy systems and all the expensive maintenance and things you have to pay and getting off of those sort of, I'll call it lock-in lock you know, data data technologies and liberate your data because the value is all in the data and you can monetize the data, you just gotta liberate it. So you gotta put it into, into new ways of managing the data and, and, involve, and controlling the data and to get the value out of it. And every organization I've ever talked to, not just banks, wanna get more value out of their petabytes and petabytes of data and so, you know you got to plan that data architecture just like you got to plan your application architecture and your infrastructure architecture you got to, you've got you got to put your arms around the whole thing and the biggest challenge I think people have is having the talent and of course the vendors are also you know telling a different story so I think it's it's complicated and so I try and in my role you know, to those customers that I uh, with that that strategic partners you know be able to advise them on things that aren't specific to our technology at VMware advise them on how to execute these kinds of transformations, having done one. And, and it wasn't perfect, but you know, learned a lot and um, you know, leverage leverage my experience and my insights and my knowledge and of course gamers technology to help put you in a better position. And then you know free up those OpEx and CapEx dollars to invest in your future and go talk to your application teams because you need to invest in them as well uh, to keep them uh, on the innovation curve.
0: So, Greg, one of the things you mentioned there was um, was around talent. And it's so one of the conversations I know you and I have had in the past. Um, what's your take on attracting, retaining talent, particularly in FS now that um, the, the talent pool is, is the same people that want to join FS? Sorry, it's the same people that want to join tech firms. It's the same people that want to go into data science or development or whatever, whatever it might be. What's What's your what are your what's your thoughts or, or your pattern around that attracting and retaining key talent?
1: Yeah, I would add grow talent you know, in that category as well. So, on that point, on that point, I actually created a um, you know a, a, my own university recruiting program. I had done this at uh, Cisco and so as well. And having been a professor for you know, fourteen years of my life when I was younger, when I was doing my startups, um, spinning out of my research. I sort of understood the you know. The value of to my students when they when they did internships or you know took on new roles and new jobs and when they graduated, both undergrad and graduate. So I created a robust um, global um, you know talent acquisition program through you know, universities where we had global sites and you know, good universities. And um, over over time, you know, recruited over 200 people into my organization, 175 to 200. I don't remember the exact number. And you know, really invested in those those, uh, those uh, college graduates to align them to a particular technology focus area, and, and give them a two-year apprenticeship program with a mentor, and as part of a you know, team, you know, driving driving the new agenda to get them the opportunity to kind of leverage their their skills and grow their careers. I'm very proud of the fact that many of them are still at, at, at my former employer. You know, and have advanced, and you know, part of the part of the leading the charge, as it were. But also, you got to bring in good leadership. And so, given my wide network in the tech industry, I recruited out of the tech industry as well to bring in, you know, sort of leader for storage, for example. I already had a very you know first-class networking team, um, but we added to that. So, I mean, in those core technology areas where you really need to drive hard and you can't make mistakes, you you got to bring in the experience, but you can also bring in the new talent and teach it and grow it. So and then, you know, honestly, um, for the for the, I'll call it the um, longtime employees, uh, many of them uh, rose to the occasion when they, they became inspired by the new directions. They I had a senior, you know, 25 year veteran tell me, you know, uh, Greg, you know, you, t- you took what was a 25 year job and finally gave me a career. They felt like they were part of the larger industry movement to this new future. And before they had this job and they sat in their cube and they did their job and were three rated for, you know, twenty-five years, and then rose to the occasion, took over a team and were one rated and you know and promoted for the first time in a decade, um, because they were inspired and challenged. And so I think a lot of it goes back to leadership on how you take existing talent, repurpose it, remotivate it, you know, re excite it, and, and you can get tremendous value out of people because they have so much institutional knowledge about how the place actually works i call it the shadow org chart in, in any organization there's the there's the org chart you know you have from the top of the house and then you have what i call the shadow org chart which is the person in networking and in, in, in servers and storage that know each other and work with each other and they work together well and if you just get all the bs out of the way those people will actually do tremendous things and what, what we've seen now like for example in covid19 i see it across many many companies is whereas they they spent six months arguing and fighting over how to do virtual networking. Uh, when COVID came, they realized that their bandwidth, you know, cru- was being crushed and they had some security risks. And so they implemented virtual networking with micro segmentation in a week, having debated it for six months. And the CIO said, Well, if we can do this in a week, why did we waste six months? Good question. So the question is, okay, yeah, you can't create risk risky risky propositions, but you know, with when you, when you tap into that knowledge base, that institutional knowledge of people who are sort of spread across the bureaucracy of any organization and you empower them and give them ownership and accountability, they'll get it done. And so we'll just make that the norm. Create an organization of accountability, I call it clear goals, clear roles, clear accountability. Okay, whatever the org chart is exists for budget allocations and reporting relationships. But don't, put, don't let organizational structures put up impediments and barriers to good people getting work done. And I think many organizations fall into that trap. And so my, my philosophy has always been is to you know enable the right people in the right roles with the right goals. And then and only then do you have a system of accountability and then get the job done. And many companies are learning that as a result of this COVID-19 crisis. And I think that's a good thing.
0: We all have
1: some form of unconscious bias given our culture, family, you know, environment of origin. But uh, hopefully as we become more educated, um, we become more, you know, um, interactive on a global stage. Um, Many companies, you know, have global offices and global employees, I mean, tolerance and empathy and acceptance of differences um, is a strength. And um, I think those of us that have had the privilege in life to work, to travel internationally, maybe live internationally, work with international colleagues, you know, through our, through our own company or through the relationships with other companies, um, you know, we're fortunate that we have a perspective that basically is more inclusive of diversity and, um, and talent and skill. And so I think, you know, we first have to un- overcome some innate unconscious bias, um, and then we have to you know be accepting of the kind of partnerships and diversity of opinions ideas, experiences and cultures uh, in order to operate you know in a, in a global setting and um, it's very unfortunate that we we have a large percentage of our populations that have not had those experiences that I enumerated earlier and um, and and it's only going to require education and um, Perhaps legislation, um, you know, to change some of the social institutions and governmental institutions, you know, to get to make progress. So I think um, my experience has always been, you know, if you listen and you 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 reward people for their ideas, their talent, their motivation, their hard work. It doesn't matter um, your gender, your race, your creed, um, you know, your sexual preference. Um, you know, when we all get together to do the job, it's clear roles, clear roles, and clear accountability. And my experience, again, having been a professor, worked in startups, worked in research labs, worked in the tech industry, worked in financial services, there's a huge diversity of talent that's available, and uh, we have to leverage it. And therefore, we have to be accepting of differences and find opportunities to work together to be more, more productive. Greg, recently, um, Matthew and I had a uh, a long, dis- well,
2: a long discussion with with Nicola Eckert around um, our approach to sustainability, which was um, which has been broadcast as a podcast as, as today is, and, and it was really informative. It was really enlightening, and it really highlighted the necessity to have a sustainable approach within your within any organisation. But she was very eloquent in the way that she described it in, 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 for us as VMware. Um, I know that's one of your goals under the CTO role. The other goal that you carry is around innovation. So can you give some insight as to your approach for innovation for, for us as an organization, what innovation means to you? Because it means such a lot of different, many, many different things to different people. So I'd like your view on innovation for us as VMware and, and your personal agenda with innovation.
1: Yes, thank you. That's a, that's a really great uh, question, great topic to discuss. You know, try and keep it succinct. The, you know, one of the things I like to say is I sort of got this when I worked at Sun Microsystems and Scott McNeely used to challenge all of us in, in technology leadership roles that, uh, you know, innovation happens elsewhere. So don't get, don't get too full of yourself that, you know, that here at Sun Microsystems, we're the only people innovating. We, we were a very innovative company. And I, I think VMware, you know, has a lot of that sort of Sun DNA, I like to call it, in terms of its approach to innovation, both internally and, um, you know, with our customers, etc., but I, I like to say now more broadly that innovation happens and in, happens everywhere. So obviously, we do a lot of innovation within VMware within our products day to day, release by release. You know, customers um, provide a lot of input into those those products and those innovations. So that's an ecosystem that's alive and well at VMware. Um, and I, as I said at the beginning of the of the podcast, my role is CTO. The technology side of it is to look a little bit further out, you know, than the current you know product roadmaps, sort of in the one to three-year horizon and then the three to six-year horizon, and uh, that's kind of my advanced technology group in the near term and my research group. In the longer term, although they do uh, also do things that have a shorter shorter fuse on it. So, um, and I'll give some examples in a minute. But uh, when I say innovation happens every else, everywhere, you know, clearly the open source community is a tremendous. Uh, um, impetus and a source of innovation, and we're all the beneficiaries of it. I mean, many of the cloud vendor services are, you know, services layered on top of open source technologies like Kafka and others. And so, you know, um, we have to respect the fact that uh, the open source is an opportunity for us to both contribute to it. And we have several hundred engineers at VMware contributing into various open source technology areas, including the whole Kubernetes area, of course, uh, and many others. Uh, we have a, actually an a open source program office that's uh, part of the CTO group that uh, engages with um, the open source community more formally and um, manages the, the various engagements we have inside the company. Um, you know, the startup community is a huge source of innovation. Both uh, uh, VMware and Dell Capital uh, um, invest in uh, startups. You know, um, not just in the U.S. but in other countries as well. So we maintain a healthy relationship with what we think are key emerging startup technologies. Um, obviously, our our M and A team, um, you know, looks at uh, opportunities to acquire in innovation. Just in the twenty six months or so, I, I've twenty eight months, I guess. I've been in the company. Um, we've done twenty acquisitions. So you know, obviously, Pivotal and Carbon Black. Most recently, we just announced. Uh, intend to acquire a company called Last Line in the security space. Uh, we we acquired announced to acquire Octarine, which is a company in the container um, security space. We're investing heavily in security areas. So so tap into the innovation that's in the market when it makes sense acquire it. And uh, and then our competitors, um, you know, represent a source of innovation. We have to keep an eye on on them, and you know, recognize that we have to remain competitive. Um, and so it's a bit of a you know, we innovate, they innovate, we innovate, they innovate, you know, we can. But that's good because customers benefit. So at the end of the day, who wins from all this innovation? It's the customers uh, on some maturity curve for that innovation. So, you know, we, we, we inspire our whole R&D organization. I mentioned our radio conference, our R&D innovation offsite conference, which we hold annually. We're doing the first one virtually this year on a global level. So we'll see how that goes. But, you know, our, our, our goal is to create a culture of innovation and partner with our customers and um, as I said, pay attention to all the other actions going on in the marketplace to engage across a broad front of innovation. But if I think about some of the key innovations at uh, at VMware that we're working on right now, uh, obviously uh, the emergence of smartNICs and ARM processors on SmartNICs is giving a kind of a new kind of edge compute platform on which we can do clever things uh, with our technology. So uh, we're obviously paying a lot of attention to and doing some research and innovation in um, in SmartNIC technologies and what's called fabric virtualization. Once you have SmartNICs and once you have you know advanced software running on the SmartNIC as opposed to the host computer, then you can do more interesting things in the networking space and the security space as well in terms of inline, uh, in band, you know, in bandwidth um, um, traffic analysis and machine learning on that. So new platform, new opportunity to give customers new value. Uh, through the innovations in this in the, in the nick, smart NIC area. Um, in the area of crypto, you know we always keep up with the latest cryptographic advances to ensure that the customer's data, communications, applications are protected with the latest crypto algorithms. It's a never ending uh, challenge to keep up with that. Um, there's the potential threat yet to be fully validated of a potential quantum cryptography um, being, I'm sorry, classical cryptography being threatened by a quantum computer. Uh, to get to that level, we need a lot more qubits than have been publicly announced to make a good crack at those cryptographic algorithms. So this general area goes by the term crypto agility. That is, you wanna make sure that your technology um, has the ability to adopt and evolve to new cryptographic algorithms without uh, you know, rip and replace. So you know, we have to make sure that as we engineer our products going forward, that we can update or replace cryptographic algorithms, particularly if there's a threat from the post-quantum cryptography, you know, innovations that may happen, um, so that we give our customers time to upgrade their products to the new cryptographic algorithms to protect their data and communications. So, you know, this is just, those are just two of the areas we work in. I mean, you mentioned sustainability, you know, carbon metering, you know, being efficient in the way we use computing resources at scale is an essential part of sustainability. So that's an area of investment. Um, We have a new service mesh product coming out this summer, Tanzu service mesh. That's the result of a two to three year, you know, innovation partnership between the office of the CTO and our networking security business unit. So we make, we make a number of uh, forward looking investments. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. That's the, that's the nature of uh, innovation and research. But, um, you know, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes in the innovation area that's in the three to six year horizon, which is where I put the quantum computing. But also, I, as I mentioned, the smart nicks in the one to three year innovation horizon to give customers, again, new technologies, but whether on prem or in the colo or at the edge. And of course, 5G. Um, we all hear a lot about 5G and what's happening there, but software defined 5G, you know, with, um, you know, um, the ability to have it operate securely, um, you know, not have particular vendors have uh, eavesdropping capability. So 5G is a hot emerging area. And so we have some investments together with Dell Technologies looking into this area. So I could, I could go on for another 10 minutes on, on innovation areas, but I think the most important thing is uh, through our engagement with our customers, we share these uh, future innovations and get customer validation, customer feedback as to which ones seem relevant to them. And although customers are often focused in the here and now, um, you know, by engaging through my CTO to CTO program with forward-looking customers, um, then we find that uh, there's opportunities to share, to share in this area. Machine learning, of course, is an obvious area. We, you know, our technology you know, sees a lot inside of a company's data center. We see what's happening in the virtualized guest guests running on our hypervisor. We see if you're using our NSX technology and our virtual networking technology, we see across your network. And with our end-user computing technology and our Carbon Black security technology, we see what's happening at the endpoints. And with our um, Workspace One and AirWatch technology behind that, uh, we see what's happening at the end of, at, at the edge mobile device. So we can really, on any device, you know, across any network, across you know any compute that the customer has running our technology, we see end-to-end. Uh, what's going on and we're applying machine learning. I mentioned last line as an intent to acquire, uh, recently announced, you know, it will give us even more capability to provide that kind of machine learning intelligence in band to the, um, to the, what's going on across you know, customers' environments and give them uh, proactive intelligence as opposed to reactive uh, information. So, you know, and I didn't even mention all the innovation we're doing in modern apps and containers and Kubernetes and vSphere 7 and Project Pacific. You can do plenty of um, videos and, and look at our blogs at VMware.com to, to get information on those. So, you know, at CTO, my biggest challenge is keeping up with it all, <laughs> not just what's going on inside VMware, but what's going on with our competitors, what's going on in the open source community. And the good news is I don't have to keep track of it all. I've got a great staff of, like I said, 250 some people in the office of CTO that I rely on. Not to mention all of our CTOs for our business units, our principal engineers, our fellows, you know, our, and as I said, our customers. So uh, we got lots of smart people, you know. In VMware, there's lots of smart people in every company. Um, our opportunity and our challenge is to keep everybody challenged and move the industry forward. And for whatever years I have remaining in my career, you know, I plan to spend them at VMware, helping the rest of the industry, you know, transform themselves as I had the privilege. And opportunity to do that at uh, my former employer in the financial services industry, and I think there's a lot of lessons for our customers, for us as technology companies, um, to help you know our customers, the market, you know this is the global society, to continue to operate and function in ways that um, were un- unachievable before. We briefly touched on the topic of resiliency, and I know in banking. Banking has always been highly resilient, spends a lot of money uh, on technology for resiliency. The rest of the world doesn't operate that way. The healthcare industry wasn't operating that way. Our governments weren't operating that way. And the new lesson for me, as someone who's always built large-scale, reliable, resilient, distributed computing platforms, is, you know, we, we need as a society to... Advance the, the capabilities, of, particularly of local and state governments, um, and uh, and federal governments. You know, healthcare, telemedicine, and I think VMware, particularly with our SD WAN technology, our in user computing technology, our Workspace One technology, and of course our core infrastructure technology, uniquely positioned to uh, to enable to enable those um, those customers in that segment of the market to 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 have the benefits uh, at an affordable price of what you know, financial services and other critical industries, you know, have, have already learned like the telco space and the banking space I mentioned. So that, that's, that's the, I think that's a key lesson for us at VMware and um, we've already done a number of things in the telemedicine space to enable hospitals and doctors and healthcare workers to continue to supervise patients even though the patients weren't coming to the hospital for obvious reasons um, because they were afraid. And so how do you, how do you enable sort of global telemedicine? And I think the rest of the world doesn't have the benefits of, the, of the, our more modern technologically driven societies. That's a huge opportunity for us all as well. So I'm very optimistic about the future. And as long as I'm healthy and can um, provide the, the leadership to help us get there, that's what I'll do.
0: Fabulous. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to everyone.
0: If we can help you in any way, please talk to your VMware account team. Alternatively, you can connect with us through LinkedIn, just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware, or you can follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'Neill, and you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you'd like to follow our guest today, Greg Lavender, you can find him on Twitter at gregl__vmware, and you can learn more about the office of the CTO by following at vmwocto on Twitter or visiting octo.vmware.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it interesting and you can join us again next time.